sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome back to The Politics Guys, Ken. Thanks, Trey. Well, it's always a lot of fun uh, to be doing the show, and I know we've got a lot of new voices, but this week you get myself and Ken on, I think, one of the bigger policy weeks that we've had uh, in a while. I know a lot of times when we're, we're doing the show, I think politics sometimes trumps policy here, <clears throat> not because that's not what we want to do, but that's it ends up being what the big news of the week is. But I think this week, there's a lot of policy things to be said with Robert Mueller's statement. And really, it's a really brief statement. Uh, His major points were that he's resigning uh, from the Justice Department. He's closing the special counsel office. And he just wants to, quote, make a few remarks because in general, he wants, quote, the work to speak for itself. Uh, And so what is that he's trying to communicate? Well, one, and I think this is something that we're going to be talking about here, Ken, is that, quote, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit crimes, we would have said that. We did not. However, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. A president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. And he goes on to say that he doesn't believe it's appropriate for him to speak about this investigation, even to Congress. So, Ken, one of the things I want to kind of ask you, and we've had some listeners talk about, is, is this really unconstitutional, or is it, in fact, just a policy of the DOJ? And what do you take on this statement? I'll start you there. Yeah, actually, I I have to parse the words of his statement carefully, because I'm not sure that Robert Mueller um, purported to say that he thought it was unconstitutional. I think what he purported to say is that the the Justice Department uh, Office of Legal Counsel since the mid-70s has had a policy that says that it would be unconstitutional to um, indict a sitting president. I think that policy actually got started um, in connection with when they did indict um, Spiro Agnew, who was the sitting vice president. Um, there was um, they, they wrote a policy paper about why it's okay to indict a, a vice president, but it wouldn't be constitutional to indict a, a president. And that's been the policy ever since. So I think he was only saying that the Justice Department policy is that it's unconstitutional to indict a, a sitting president and that, that he was going to adhere to Justice Department policy. So I'd, I don't know that he weighed in on whether he agreed with the the merits of that policy or the substance of that policy, or, or even whether he considered it, because he may have just considered that he was going to follow policy without even thinking harder about whether he agrees with it or not. But um, I, I don't think it's obviously a correct constitutional analysis, if, if that was part of the question. I, no yes, court has yes. ever weighed in on it. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think, I, you know, the, the, the biggest inferences, I guess the, the arguments that are in the Justice Department white paper for why they say that uh, a sitting president can't be indicted, there comes down to one textual, one piece of the Constitution's text and one structural inference. So the, the Constitution's text says, that um, impeachment, um, that that after impeachment, uh, a, a removed uh, officer, including a removed president, um, can still be indicted, tried, and convicted. Right. So since since it says uh, being removed from office 
essentially it wouldn't be double jeopardy to then criminally try somebody after they've already been impeached and removed that that someone can be impeached and uh, someone can be indicted after they've been um, impeached and removed there's possibly a negative inference there that that means they can't be indicted before they've been impeached and removed although it doesn't literally say that um, and then the other structural inference is the idea that um, the president, uh, unique among all uh, federal officers, um, is someone who um, uh, essentially has all the, the executive power vested in him by the Constitution so that he can't, um, nobody else can really um, do the work of the president. Um, and, and so um, so if he had to go to prison while he was president or something like that, then we wouldn't have a head of the executive branch. And so the idea would be that he's he's got a... Um, you know, he, he's got to first not be president anymore before that can happen. So that's kind of a structural inference. And that's part of um, uh, in the Agnew uh, analysis, what, why the Justice Department said it's perfectly OK to indict, convict and send to prison a sitting vice president, whether or not he's been uh, impeached and removed, because he doesn't have any particular duties. Um, he doesn't have all the executive power vested in him. Other people could do whatever work he's doing. And the same has certainly been applied in cases involving uh, federal judges. There have been federal judges who've been um, uh, um, indicted and, and convicted of crimes uh, before they've been impeached and removed. In fact, one of them, um, Alcee Hastings, who's currently a member of Congress, um, was indicted, tried, and acquitted, uh, and then impeached. Um, so the, the indictment and trial came first, and he was acquitted uh, by a jury. Uh, but then he was then he was actually impeached afterwards for the same uh, offenses. So, um, so for for offices other than the president, uh, the, the it's it's been accepted that they can be indicted and tried first, and uh, th that's the reasoning I guess for for why they think it's different for the president. I, yeah, I guess I'm just not sure that that's that's crystal clear. I don't think it's a crazy theory, but I think there could be contrary theories. The 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 framers did give us um, the impeachment process, so certainly. The idea that the president um, can be held accountable during his term in office, that he's not above the law, um, that he may have to face um, uh, uh, some some investigations and some some penalties for crimes. You know, I think all of that is inherent in the idea that we have an impeachment process. If, if they really didn't want the president to be um, investigated or to be accountable or to possibly have to face charges while he's in office, then we wouldn't have impeachment at all. Um, and I think the framers were very attached to the idea that uh, we have a government under the rule of law, a government of laws, not of men. Um, and there is something monarchical about the idea that the the president, um, uh, uh, the king can do no wrong and applying mm -hmm. that kind of thing to the president. So so I think there's there's some countervailing reasons to think a president can be indicted. But, you know, at, at this point, it's all in the realm of theory because no court has ever weighed in on any of this. No president's ever been indicted. Right. And so this now brings us to this week's kind of shift, because last week, talking about impeachment, at least among Democratic candidates, uh, in the words of NPR, and I think they had this spot on, was tepid. And now post the comments, it seems like this is becoming a, a, an idea that has gained traction on the pragmatic side of the policy here. Do you think that the comments here that if they had confidence that the president clearly did not did not commit a crime, uh, do you think that changes anything about the optics or the possibility of impeaching President Trump? Yeah, I mean, you and I talked about that issue a month ago. Um, yeah, when, we when did. The, That's right. Yeah, when 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 the report was out and the and 
but yet Mueller hadn't spoke publicly yet. And at the time, as you'll recall, and as some listeners will probably recall, you know what 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 I had said was that um, Barr got out ahead of things by knowing that most people aren't going to read a, a 400-page report, and by frankly mischaracterizing what the report said. And it's obvious that Mueller thought that Barr mischaracterized what the report said. There was the correspondence between them, which was reported a couple of weeks ago, and then there was, you know, what Mueller said yesterday. Um, I think it's it's it has been crystal clear the whole time on on the substance that Mueller thinks that there's probable cause uh, to believe that the president obstructed justice. That's what the Mueller report says. That's essentially what the quote that you just quoted says. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Barr um, had said the opposite, and a lot of the media, um, you know, kind of, and a lot of public opinion was initially influenced by Barr's uh, characterization. So, um, you know, I, I I don't know the politics change. I think only in a limited way. I I don't think any significant number or even any Republican senators are are prepared to vote to remove uh, Trump from office. And so, just like a month ago, just like before Mueller had the the uh, uh, oral statement, um, an impeachment, um, actual impeachment trial would be doomed uh, to lead to a, an acquittal. Um, and so that sort of uh, is an overarching fact um, that has to color what the um, Democrats are going to do. Um, but I continue to think the right thing to do, and this is what I said a month ago, is for the uh, yeah, investigate and to label it an impeachment inquiry. I would use the word impeachment inquiry, and so that when they're sending subpoenas around to look at things, you know, the president's taxes, things like that that they've already asked for, you know, instead of saying, well, we're doing this because we're thinking we might need to tinker with the Internal Revenue Code and we want to we want to see how they're um, handling audits of presidents, I, I think they should forthrightly say we're doing this because we're investigating whether to um, uh, start an impeachment action against the president. We're trying to figure out whether he did a high crime or misdemeanor. So I. I'd like to see those investigations proceeding directly under the verbiage of impeachment inquiry and and openly towards the goal of, of investigating whether there have been high crimes and misdemeanors. But but I don't think it's uh, fruitful to actually get to the point where there's an impeachment trial. I don't see I don't see Republican votes in the Senate changing on that. And even if you could change two or three of them, which I think is the maximum possible achievable thing, um, you know, you'd need to change 19 of them before there's any chance of a removal. Now, one of the other things that happened this week that caught my attention, uh, Representative Justin Amash, a uh, Republican out of Michigan, uh, argued and that, in fact, the president probably has committed uh, acts worthy of impeachment. Now, that in and of itself is not uh, the end of the world, but I was very interested that Cato uh, jumped on board this week and also suggested uh, that, you know what, uh, Representative Amash is correct, uh, pointing uh, to Federal 65 and kind of taking a more conservative approach, arguing that the president, yeah, maybe he should be impeached. Do you think that there has been uh, a shift of the perception of President Trump on the right? Because it seems to me that there's a possibility, while this may not lead to impeachment, that we might actually begin to be seeing the end of forming the ranks around Donald Trump. What do you think? Well, I mean, first, I'll just, you're probably more, you probably have your finger on the pulse beat of the right a little bit more than I do. So you may be, <laughs> you may be better positioned to answer that than me. But I, I do think there's been a phenomenon of, um, you know, the whole time Trump's been in office of certain conservative voices who are not in the Congress. Um, you know, there's been the anti-Trump Republicans the whole time. Um, you know, the people like George Will, 
uh, people like um, uh, uh, William Crystal, um, you know, you brought in Cato, even people like Kellyanne Conway's husband, George Conway, um, have been out there the whole time uh, uh, really saying, you know, that, that Trump uh, has been uh, committing crimes and in other ways has been unfit for office. So I think that um, conservatives who don't have to answer to the Republican electorate um, typically are able to look at these issues more objectively than Republican elected officials who need to maintain, um, to some extent, the support of uh, voters who voted for Trump and who are perhaps still loyal to Trump. So I, th I think that's a disjunction that I see within the right. Um, uh, now, Justin Amash is an interesting case because, as you note, um, you know he is a Republican elected official, and he's he may mm -hmm. he may be the first Republican elected official. That I can think, maybe uh, maybe uh, Governor uh, Hogan in Maryland, um, uh, former Governor Weld in, in from Massachusetts, um, you know, a few um, uh, have have been saying similar kinds of things. But um, but I, I I was reading in the in the papers that uh, when Amash went back to his district in Michigan and held a town meeting and talked about this. Um, and a lot of voters, both Democratic and Republican voters, were there. That he he went over very well. That he he had a lot more support than opposition from his uh, constituents, which included Republican constituents. So that that is interesting. And but I actually have to turn the question back to you because I say you're really more in touch with the with the, I think the voters on the right than I am. What what do you think? Well, you know, that's what I've been kind of wrestling with this week. Uh, when Donald Trump first began his run, I took him as a joke, uh, doing it for a publicity stunt. I mean, this was the guy I, I had grown up watching the, you know, uh, wrestling and he was the guy who came on wrestling and was kind of a sideshow. Uh, and I saw that as being, you know, no more or less, uh, than a sideshow. And for the few people who seemed to support Donald Trump early on, uh, they were the, the, the bit of the crazies from my point of view. But it seemed that once Donald Trump became president, I was the one who was actually on the outster uh, when I met and did things with local officials in Florida and now in uh, Oklahoma. You know, they were always quick to have their connection with Trump uh, trumpeted uh, to make a, a little bit of a not so funny pun. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I think what I see in a mash and I see in and I've seen in Cato, but this is the first time I've seen it be so explicit is a willingness to take a fundamental hit at the president in a way. I mean, it, you mentioned Conway, but I, I, I would say more traditionally conservative uh, outlets mm -hmm. and, you know, and not in a quick kind of way. I mean, a mash kind of outlines it in a pretty scholarly manner for what you can do on Twitter. And then as you, as you mentioned, follows that up uh, later in person with a town hall. Uh, and so for me, it kind of feels like maybe we're finally having a moment where everybody's willing to talk a little bit more openly about the president. And I, I don't know if it's Mueller specifically that makes that happen, but it sure seems like this has at least been the opportunity to give it vent, uh, as you know, in political times, we often see that there has to be some kind of catalyst that allows people to give that voice. And I'm wondering if this hasn't been kind of murmuring a bit under the surface. And so now with this kind of statement, it, it, it moves forward. And I agree with you. You made your point earlier uh, that, you know, no one besides the two of us are going to read the full report, right? Uh, a buddy of mine who's a sociologist out of Florida, he, you know, he's constantly talking about like, you can, you can even listen to the audiobook version of it. And I'm teasing him about that because I'm like, uh, right. 
guy nobody's he's a good friend of mine a very good friend of mine so i don't mean that in a bad way but he's wrong right no one's gonna listen to the audiobook version of the Mueller report but as a scholar of media i think that these kinds of very quick sentences that you get from uh, Mueller can be real powerful and i'm not in some ways, it might have been him saying less might actually have a bigger impact than had he gone out and taken a bunch of questions. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. So that's a, that had me thinking about something, what you just said, because I agree with that. Uh, so Mueller, you know, one thing he said at the sort of, you know, at the beginning and end of his brief statement was, you know, there's no point in me testifying in front of Congress. If I do it, I'm not going to say anything that I haven't already written in writing anyhow. Um, you know, I have nothing more to say. Uh, well, I think that's fine. I mean, if if I'm Jerry Nadler right now, I'm thinking that's perfect. You know, I'd, I'd like to s- subpoena him, have him come down here and testify, and I'll ask him questions. And if he just simply gives me sound bites where he says things that he already wrote in the Mueller report, and if he doesn't provide one piece of information more than that, that's all. I, that's all I really want. You know, from Nadler's standpoint, right? Just to have the television ready sound clips. It's not exactly. really about having him testify to give more information. It's about having him testify to so that um, he can be on TV saying a sentence or two that he's already written in the Mueller report that nobody read. But now they will see it when it comes on TV. So so I, I think the Democrats have to really, really, really insist that Mueller testify, but they don't have to push him too hard to, to say anything uh, that isn't. In, you know, it's fine if the only things he says uh, verbally are things that he already said in writing. Um, because the key here is just getting 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 it on TV, I think. Well, in all honesty, I think a very good kind of analogy here is, and it, it's in some ways I saw the Mueller report a little bit like myself when I'm talking about my syllabus, right? So I gave my, you give your syllabus at the beginning of class, you pass it out, you talk about it, you move it, but nobody reads it. Right. No. Right. By the way, listeners, if you're wondering, nobody reads it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just true. Take take two professors' words for it on this. Uh, but then later on, I will inevitably end up having to take a question and saying, "Well, as it says in the syllabus, you know, the due dates will be Friday at eleven. They are, by the way, class at eleven thirty, <laughs> <laughs> you know, PM. Uh, and I, and I do that because that's when everybody's taking their note. That's when everybody's got their recorder on. That's when everybody's actually, you know, writing things down. I felt a little bit like this uh, uh, from the Mueller point of view because he even mentions he says, as we talked about in section two, you know. This is why we're not going to do it, but this is also why we don't we don't think we have not cleared the president effectively. It's as if he was attempting to highlight him his own syllabus, uh, and so I saw that kind of through a media lens, and I'm yeah, hoping well, that that is what is freeing up people on the right to being able to now say, "Well, look, I've got some issues with Donald Trump, the president Donald Trump as well." Right, I, you know, and in fact, if if Barr hadn't have overplayed his cards, I think Mueller never would have done that. Um, I think I think Mueller would have been happier to never make a television appearance, but he actually felt compelled to do it because um, Barr had had really. I'm I'm going to go ahead and say lied about. Um, I know people could argue with that, but I think lied about the central finding uh, in in the in the Mueller report, which is um, you know Mueller said on the issue of obstruction. Um, we're not going to clear him. And the only reason we're not going to charge him is because you can't charge the president. Uh, and then Barr said, well, what Mueller did was he he 
he would have charged him if there was an uh, evidentiary basis, but since there was not enough evidence of guilt, that's why he didn't charge him. So that, I think that's really the opposite of what Mueller said, and I think it aggravated Mueller enough that he felt that he had to get on TV and set the record straight. And now I think that's to Trump's great disadvantage, as I think we're, as I think we're both agreeing. The fact that Mueller went on television is to Trump's great disadvantage. I do, and I think that it also opens him up to now maybe having some more serious challenges uh, as a primary, uh, or at least one might hope. And I think that Trump himself is worried, and I think this actually leads into our our second story that we want to talk about here, Ken. And that is, is that on Thursday, right? So he goes after Mueller after uh, the statement. And he then kind of has this bit of a footnote on Thursday. And he says, he tells reporters on Thursday that he's going to give uh, a quote, big league statement. I'm I'm still not sure if that's what he means by that or a big league statement, whichever one it is. Uh, Later on the day on Friday, dealing with illegal border crossings. And so what we discovered the following day uh, is that. So that happened on Wednesday. So on Thursday, uh, Trump uh, comes out and suggests this week that there are going to be tariffs on all Mexican goods. That's right. All. There's actually no exceptions in this one. And the cause for this is illegal immigration. Now, there wasn't any specifics from the White House on what kind of illegal immigration crackdown is going to be necessary to stop these uh, tariffs. And before we get into the tariffs more specifically, isn't it interesting, though, that this was the card that gets played immediately after Mueller? So before we even talk about the content of the tariffs, Ken, what do you think about the timing of the tariffs? That's, you know, I had not actually thought about that until you just asked. So I, I think that's very insightful because I, if I if I understand your your implication there, your, you, the idea would be Trump is trying to find a way to consolidate his own base. Um, he's worried now that uh, based on Mueller's TV statement, some of his base might actually be wavering about him. And so he's doing something that's really like throwing red meat to his base so that they'll stay loyal to him. Um, yeah, right, I think he even a, hints it. He hints it that day. Right. I mean, he could have yeah. waited. Yeah, I think that's a, a very plausible uh, theory. Um, you know, I, I, I had not really thought it through until you just said it, but it, it makes sense to me. Well, I'll tell you, the other reason I've been thinking about that is when you think about from a campaign strategy, a communications point of view, you don't drop big news at the end of the week unless you want that news generally to die. So uh, a matter of fact, you know, that that was a really powerful position from uh, Reagan, right? He knew when to put the bad news. It was Thursday and Friday because nobody pays attention to things on Saturday and Sunday in uh, general, I know more recently uh, th- that kind of has shifted a little bit, but that still holds true. So I, the first thing I thought about was this is a f- weird time of the week to be announcing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, but when you saw all of the stories having at the very end of them this, uh, you know, this Trump kind of hinting right after he's talking about the investigation about his his bigly statement, uh, and then you know unveiling it the next day. I couldn't help but see that from the point of view of a political communication scholar. I mean, if I was working on his campaign, this is what I want something to die. So in many ways, I kind of saw this as an, an attempt to deflate that balloon at least a little bit, or to take up some more oxygen out of the room so that this quote wouldn't get as much traction until you got around to a new a, a newer news cycle on Monday. Yeah, I'm sure you're right, actually. In fact, just to test your theory, uh, 
while you were talking, I went on to WashingtonPost.com, and I see that three of the top headlines, right? One of the top headlines is Mexico rushes envoy to Washington and bid to prevent Trump's new, new tariffs plan. One is uh, what Mexico is doing and not doing to keep migrants from crossing into the U.S. One is uh, dozens of Homeland Security agents and investigators to deploy to Guatemala-Mexico border and bid to slow unauthorized migration. So all the top headlines now are about this subject, and that means all the top headlines are no longer about Mueller, right? And that's got to be um, one of the purposes here. And if nothing else, uh, Trump has been, I will give him mastery of this. He's been a master of social media and he's been a master of releasing information. Yeah. Now there's on a substantive level, it's a kind of an irony that um, here he is still trying to get Congress to approve uh, his revisions to NAFTA, his uh, whatever he called it, the USMCA. Um and yet, you know, the, he he would be violating it right now, right? Like the yes. very, the very, yeah, the very plan that he's saying. You know? Well, why don't we get down into the details of the policy then, Ken? Because uh, th- this is a very interesting economic uh, crossover, and this is a big legal question as well. So, listeners, here's here's the effectives of the plan. We don't know specifically what the benchmarks are, but assuming that Mexico does not crack down on quote Ill- uh, illegal immigration. Uh, what will begin is that starting on June 10th, all goods shipped from Mexico to the United States are going to face an extra 5% uh, tax. Then on July 1st, that goes up to 10%. On August 1st, it goes up to 15%. On September 1st, it would go up to 20%. And on October 1st, presumably at its highest rate, it would go up to 25%. Now, for those of you who are listening, you might be asking if you have a little bit of knowledge on this. Well, how can the president uniformly, uh, uh, excuse me, unilaterally right. set tariff levels? Isn't that the domain of Congress? Well, he's invoking the International Emergencies Economic Powers Act. Now, I'm going to be honest. I was not familiar with this until I actually read the act itself, read a little bit of the uh, the history of the act itself. Um, But this actually gets uh, enacted in 1977 to clarify and restrict, actually, interestingly, presidential power during times of declared national emergency. Uh, This is coming kind of in the wake of thinking a little bit about a case that you and I talked earlier in the year about, Ken, um, the uh, Youngstown uh, uh, Youngstown Tube Company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh And so this was an attempt to kind of limit the power during emergency declarations. Uh, and but this is the this is the the act that's being used by Cong- uh, by the president to kind of bypass Congress. So I almost feel like we're having a, the same show again, only this time, instead of talking about building a wall, we're talking about enacting tariffs. So, Ken, what do you think about uh, the use of this Act. Let's start there uh, in in using tariffs. And just to put this in context, it's interesting that uh, that Chuck Grassley of Iowa has already argued that this is an abuse of the act. So, do you agree with Grassley? Do you disagree? How does this act fit in to tariffs? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, I agree with Grassley because I don't believe there's an emergency, right? But if you, right. uh, so if you, if you, the, the harder question would be if you believe there is an emergency. But yes. I think, I think, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think anyone, anyone who doesn't believe that um, what's happening at the border is an emergency, and I would, think we've would, kind of already talked that one. I mean, if you'd yeah. like to hear more about this, this, you know, yeah. what, what, three months ago now we had that conversation. No, two months, I guess right. it would have been. 
the continuation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, if for there to even be a debatable point here, there'd have to be, um, you know, some notion that this is an emergency. But this, you know, this statute, um, if you think of the sort of intended uses of it, uh, so when the uh, Iranians took the hostages in the 1970s, shortly after the act was enacted, uh, President Carter froze all the Iranian assets that were in the United States. So the Iranians had, um, you know, bank accounts and brokerage accounts and real estate here. And the, the government um, used this statute to declare that the hostage taking was an international emergency and that they weren't going to unfreeze these assets until it was resolved. Um that's the kind of thing that the statute is intended for. Um, you know, that's something where the hostages, uh, when, when the hostages were taken, you know, Congress had not already specifically legislated on how to deal with that. So the, the National, uh, International, Emergen International Economic Emergency Powers Act gives the framework, some, the president, some latitude to deal with that. But in the case of what's happening at the border, you know, the, the, the president has gone to Congress, has said what he wants them to do. And they've refused it. So uh, that's a totally different kind of framework. Um, you know, under Youngstown Steel, the idea is that the president has some additional powers to deal with emergencies if he deals with them in ways that that is consistent with um, how Congress would have wanted them dealt with. Youngstown certainly says that the president can't do things just to, um, you know, to ignore the will of Congress. And, and in Youngstown, uh, President uh, Truman's uh, seizure of the steel mills is declared unconstitutional as it should have been because it went uh, directly against the the will of Congress. So so I don't I don't personally think you know in in what I would consider the absence of any real emergency that there's any basis for using this. But well, you know, my, there, I have, I have oh, yeah, a, a okay. specific question on that, Ken, yeah. because yeah. given the context of what I have looked at in the law, it seems like a tariff would never be an appropriate mechanism in the context of what's being happened here because that seems like what what seems to be happening from the white house is suggesting well we get to take this power from congress if there's emergency where really what it seems like the law is about is granting powers to presidents that neither congress or the president would generally have outside of the act of an emergency what, what do you think about that as a reading yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the 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 idea of of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act and some some similar statutes like the National Emergencies Act is that there will occasionally be bona fide emergencies that um, somebody needs to deal with quickly and rapidly in real time, and so Congress has written a little bit of the blank check to presidents to be able to do that. But it, it really does depend on the idea that the presidents are um, acting in good faith, that the emergencies are bonafide, um, that these are things that, um, you know, but, come I mean, up but, all of a sudden. Could a tariff ever be um, an emergency reaction? I mean, this is a graduated tariff yeah. over the course of months. Oh, I see. It, yeah. It, it doesn't appear that even the nature of the action would qualify as an emergency action, right? Uh, it just yeah. seems like you're just wholesale reaching over into the pocket of Congress and saying, well, I want this to happen. It's mine now. Yeah. Let me actually, I'll, I'll very slightly defend Trump on that part okay. of the point. Please yeah. do. So, so even though I think, um, as I said, there's no emergency here and there's no predicate for using this, um, I, I think that if there was a bona fide emergency, then the statute is intended to give some flexibility to the president about what kinds of economic sanctions he uses 
in response to a bona fide emergency. So let's go back to the Iranian hostage crisis as an example. Let's suppose that hostages were taken, and instead of freezing all the assets, which is what President Carter did, let's say he would have said, okay, I'm going to um, impose um, big tariffs against Iran now, say on Iranian oil, until they release the hostages. Um, I think that's probably okay under the statute that, you know, okay. that the, 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 the idea of the statute seems to me to say, the president can unilaterally use economic sanctions um, if he needs to, to resolve uh, a, a, a fast developing bona fide emergency that before Congress has time to really deliberate and figure out how to deal with it. If somebody needs to take action right now, the president can, can figure out what kind of action is appropriate as long as it's within the realm of economic action. So I think that, I think that isn't, the fact that it's a tariff the thing that I thought, the place I thought you were going with that, which I would have agreed with more, is um, the, 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 the tariff statutes themselves, you know, NAFTA, GATT, WTO, all these trade agreements, um, they, they provide for uh, possible imposition of tariffs sometimes, but only in response to um, uh, unfair trade practices by the, by the trading partner. And this, this, this supposed migrant crisis is not a trading practice. Mm -hmm. so, so, so it seems very inapposite, right? That, that, you know, if we thought, for instance, that those countries were somehow preventing our, our companies from competing fairly in their markets, um, then, then we might have justification under the trade agreements to impose tariffs. But, but, the, but, the, but those kinds of justifications, which contemplate um, that the U.S. might impose tariffs as a, as a means of of of, of sanctions, th that's entirely related to trade disputes. And this is not a trade dispute. So, so he's kind of mixing and matching. He's using a tool that's really a tool that um, is intended to be used in trade disputes, and he's using it in a kind of unprecedented way to. Um, in something that's not a trade dispute, but a different kind of dispute, and that I would go farther and say isn't even a real emergency. So, um, so I think to, to me, those are the main problems. So with our first two stories being about uh, Trump-related issues, and I think that oftentimes is the case, Ken, <laughs> uh, we always seem to get the weeks when that is on the fore. I, I think we have two additional stories we want to take on uh, that maybe they're indirectly related to the president, but only a little bit so. And I think the first of them that we're going to take a look at uh, is abortion. And as a matter of fact, I think in some ways we might even think of this as being the spring of rekindling the abortion debate. And that gets capped this week on Thursday um, when Louisiana Governor Edwards, a Democrat, signs into law a bill banning abortion after a fetal heartbeat, it can be detected. Now, we got to be careful here because even that term, uh, a fetal heartbeat, is a debatable one uh, because at that point, fetuses do not have hearts in the way that uh, Ken and I do. Uh, and so... This leads to a lot of, I think, what we're going to be talking about. Uh, the ban has no exceptions for rape. It doesn't have exceptions for incest. And it would effectively make abortions as early as six weeks illegal. Now, what's interesting about the Louisiana bill is it's only going to go into effect if the Mississippi law, which is very similar to this one, uh, which is now in court, is upheld. Mississippi's and Louisiana's joins Kentucky, Ohio, and Georgia of this year. None of these laws have yet gone into effect, uh, while some of them have already been challenged in court, like Mississippi's. And I think one of the reason, one of the things that's worth kind of talking about here is, of course, we can talk about abortion as a policy itself, or abortion bans, or um, 
uh, women's choice as being a policy point. It's also an interesting political point because Louisiana highlights, I think, two things about this debate that have been overlooked. One of those is that state Democrats both support and sponsor these kinds of bills. And I don't think that's something that we've talked about probably at the national level enough. And secondly, that it's white women from both parties that have actually pushed and been a big part of what's made these abortion bans in larger normal numbers than has been normally realized. So all of these cases are really designed to send bills to the Supreme Court. And it really has brought back the question of women's rights versus babies and fetuses. So Ken, I guess I'm going to start with here is one of the things that's interesting about Louisiana, and I know you want to talk a little bit about Illinois, is do you think at a local level, because there's been so much conversation about national level issues, that some of the infighting between parties on this issue has gone overlooked and that there has been maybe an assumption that there has been more widespread negativity from women on this, given that they're a big part of the reason, at least I want to say white women uh, on this issue as well. Are, are we missing some of the nuance here? Is that is that part of the reason why this might seemingly be a surprise? Um I, I, I feel like the the divides in the country may be more uh, geographic than um, uh, partisan to some extent. Although obviously geography correlates with partisanship, but because um, because in the north, uh, you know, you'd have a lot of pro-choice Republicans, and then in the south, as you're pointing out, you have um, uh, pro-life Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, so that yeah, on that point, I don't know that I see the internal division as being any more uh, an issue for Democrats than for Republicans. I, I think I think um, you know that, that both parties in different parts of the country might might have different kinds of internal divisions that way. I actually don't course, disagree the, with you on that at all. I, I agree. Continue. Yeah, yeah, but of course, the, there's a you know there's a there's a geographic. Um, I mean, partisanship is related to geography because the whole Bible Belt is basically Republican, and you know, New England at this point doesn't have even a single Republican in Congress. So it's so so the the geography and the partisanship uh, uh, correlate a little bit. Um, the way I was thinking about these new abortion laws is I was seeing it more as a, a little bit of a disjunction between um, the the Republican partisan uh, politics and and actually the the pro life movement because. Uh, I think if 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 your goal is to um, you know raise money from Republican donors, then these kind of uh, um, very aggressive kinds of um, you know stances, you know we're going to pass a bill with no rape exception, no incest exception, we're going to take it to the Supreme Court. That's really good for raising money on. It's really good for getting bases energized, and it seems to me like that's that's the point here because if if the if the point conversely. Was just to minimize um, the number of abortions in the country, um, but to do it in in a in a less divisive way. Um, you know, I I think that that these these kind of bans don't advance that because uh, what they what they end up doing is um, it actually interrupting a process where the Republican controlled Supreme Court for for uh, nearly thirty years now, you know, has been simultaneously saying 
well, we're going to adhere to Roe and we're not going to overrule it. But on the other hand, every single restriction on abortion that we ever see, we're going to sustain and we're, we're not going to strike down, right? And so so if, if the goal is to put more and more restrictions on abortion, then the way to do that is to just put more and more restrictions on abortion, um, but, but never quite try to get Roe overruled. And all those restrictions, I think the court was ready to sustain. And that would include people like Roberts and Kavanaugh. Whereas if you're... Um, if we're going to do go all the way of the way Alabama's gone now, then you risk actually going so far that a Roberts or a Kavanaugh could could rule against you. And meanwhile, you're going to get a backlash from states like Illinois, which are, um, you know, which I did want to talk about, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, which never would have passed the law that it passed in, last week unless Alabama had passed the law that it passed last week. And uh, um, and, you know, in in, uh, in in Illinois, sort of as a counter reaction to what's going on in Alabama, they they um, basically repealed almost all the remaining abortion laws, including bans on partial birth abortion, bans on late term abortion, things like that. And so the, the sort of net effect of, you know, how many more abortions are you going to have in Illinois now um, versus how many fewer are you going to have in Alabama? Um, I'm, I'm going to venture a guess that um, the, the net cumulative effect of all this 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 device of controversy is going to be both to increase the number of abortions in the country and to um, also um, uh, um, increase the chance of an adverse ruling for the pro-life movement at the Supreme Court. So so I don't think the pro-life movement is actually being served by any of this. Um, and I think even Pat Robertson said so in a way. Uh, but I think I think some Republican politicians are serving themselves by by all of this. So if. If we take that view that it's really about kind of energizing the base, if it's the goal is to uh, raise money, then why the Louisiana? Why why the bipartisan nature of that in Louisiana? Because it doesn't seem to me that pro-life Democrats get – they don't get much love, if you will, from yeah. the pro-life movement. So what what's the impetus there in that schema then, you think, Ken? Yeah, so I take it that they're just um, backed into corners by the Republicans, right? So that if you if you're in a state like Louisiana, where you've got um, an electorate that's going to be responsive to that kind of uh, pro-life messaging, and the Republicans start pushing this stuff, you know, for their own partisan reasons, um, I, I think the some some of those Democrats make the judgment, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. But I but I I, I think that's that's the to me that's the explanation of why the Democrats are on board in those states. Um, I don't see that the Democrats are really being the the ringleaders on any of this stuff in those states, but I think sometimes they're just concluding that you know you you got to choose your battles, and uh, um, or maybe they or maybe they actually you know forced to vote on this. Maybe they sincerely think, well, although I'd rather not take a vote on a bill like this, if I if I have to take a vote on a bill like this, you know, I, I am pro life, so I'm going to have to vote that way. So. I don't think there is any political benefit in this for the Democrats, but I think some of the Democrats might pay a higher political cost in those states if they didn't go along with it. it. Well, it was one of the the reason I kind of asked that question is Milkovich, uh, the state senator, is a Democrat who's the one who proposed the Louisiana ban. And that actually took me a little bit aback. I would not have suspected that he would have put it out there. I, my, my initial reaction would be to think kind of what you had said, Ken, to say, well, backed into a corner. This is in fact what I believe. I'd rather not have to take a vote on it. But if we are, this is what I believe. So I'm going to vote. Uh, so when I saw that it's actually a Democrat who had been the sponsor for the bill, that that made me kind of question that potential position and I was having trouble yeah. myself trying to answer that and and where I have 
and again, maybe this makes us sound a little similar, maybe a little different, I don't know, is that could this in part be a little bit more of that uh, uh, that regional identity playing itself out? It, it does appear to me that as we've had every time you kind of start gearing up for presidential races in some ways, uh, I think there is a little bit of a backlash in saying, well, you know, localities matter more. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so um, I uh... – yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it may be the case that in certain of these southern states, there's enough single issue voters, right? There's enough voters who just will not vote for um, someone who's pro-choice. They're only going to vote for someone who's pro-life. And they and maybe, maybe they may be inclined to the view that the Republicans are more reliably uh, the party that they side with on that issue. Then that may really require in some in some jurisdictions, in some localities, that a Democratic politician who wants to be uh, viable has to really grab that issue by the horns and just, you know, put themselves out there as, uh, look, if you agree with me on other issues, if you're for, you know, uh, healthcare or something like that, um, then, you know, don't worry about the the abortion issue because I'm going to vote the same way as a Republican is. Um, you know, I, I think that might just be a survival strategy in, in some places. And, and also, I, you know, as we both, I think, agreed, you know, it may be sincere also, right? I mean, there, right. there may be, there may be people, it may just be that values in some localities, um, people have, have values in, in Louisiana that are different than the values that people have in Illinois and they are voting their values. So it's, uh, so I think all those things are possible. Well, I think we'll probably be talking about this one more as the Supreme Court continues to rule on it. Uh, you know, we've already had an unsigned opinion come out uh, for Indiana uh, for a couple of years, just now coming out, of yeah. course. Uh, but I think as these come up and they come out, we'll probably have some more things to talk about. And I hope we get to take them on, Ken, uh, yeah, given I, I, that it's, I it's court issues. Yeah. In fact, the one thing I want to say about that is just um, I think the fact that the um, uh, the um, U.S. Supreme Court um, there, there were actually two different um, uh, abortion restrictions at issue in the Seventh Circuit case out of Indiana, and they, um, the, the Seventh Circuit had um, uh, had had, had uh, basically struck down both measures, and the Supreme Court reversed one and not the other. So they I right, think they, they, did, they allowed for um, having the uh, burial processes. The burial process, right? I, I think the very fact that the Supreme Court looked at two restrictions that this, that a lower court had struck down and said, well, we're going to reinstate one of those restrictions. We're going to overrule that lower court, but we're not going to reinstate both of those restrictions. We're going to sustain the lower court on one. I think they're really signaling that they um, are not you know, as gung-ho about uh, a straight-up overruling of, of, of Roe as some people seem to think they are. Because if they were, they would have happily overruled both of the uh, both of the restrictions at issue in the Seventh Circuit case. It seems to me that's a that's a that's a kind of a signaling that they'd like to slow things down a little bit. Well, especially since they leave it unsigned, which means that you don't know the way in which anyone voted. Right, right. Although actually, you you know, I think you do really. I mean, informally in you don't, but um, it only takes four votes for the Supreme Court to uh, actually have to take up one of these issues. So I think if they couldn't even get four votes, then I would I would think it's I'd be pretty confident to say that it was both uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh um, who who left who decided to leave the other uh, the, the other restriction in place. The, the yeah. other Seventh Circuit holding in place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear it. Yes, I hear it. In the words. So two, two, two of the Republicans had to cross the aisle on that one. Otherwise, they would have taken up both issues. I hear you. Yeah. 
Well, for our final, as we start to run out of time, for our final issue this week, listeners, we want to talk a little bit about the DNC debate thresholds. And this is a this is one that, that uh, I am interested in personally uh, because it's really about thinking about the role of political parties in the contemporary uh, scene, which is, has shifted significantly over time. Uh, but this week, the DNC has argued for stricture new requirements for presidential contenders to appear in party debates. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, the first party debates, which are coming up this summer, uh, are going to require either 65,000 donors or for candidates to secure 1% in three qualified polls. However, if you want to come into the second the fall debate, they've actually upped the ante. You're now going to have to have 130,000 unique donors or 2% in four qualified polls. Many are criticizing the move, including former Representative uh, Delaney, who said, quote, the DNC is playing a gatekeeper function and they're creating a filter to determine which candidates can make their arguments to the American people, end quote. But here's my question, Ken. Shouldn't that be exactly what political parties do? Uh, I mean, I, I know that since the era of the progressives, there's been a shift on this, and we can talk about that, uh, especially as you get to the 1968 convention with uh, uh, you know Humphrey's convention and Nixon's convention, uh, launching us towards a more uh, popularly elected primary system. But what is the role of political parties in this process. I mean, are we getting to the point where we that where they're just meaningless, or do they still have a role here? Because if if you agree with Delaney, it seems to me, if they aren't supposed to play any kind of gatekeeper function, well, then they're really not playing any function whatsoever. So, am I wrong? What do you think, Ken? No, I'm, I'm with you on this. I I I I'm glad that they're going to have these thresholds. Um, you know, I, I do. I also like the superdelegate system, which I think that's an analogous issue where, you okay, know, I just, I just want to let you know, people, <laughs> yeah, you should yeah. write in about this. <laughs> we have some questions. If you're interested yeah. in this topic, we're going to be taking on some of those questions on the Wednesday. We're going to have an Ask the Politics guys, Ken and Trey show. So you should join us on Wednesday because uh, we're going to talk more about superdelegates because we got a question about superdelegates this oh. week. But continue, Ken. Talk I, now I, didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't even know that, but I, I only raised it because I not because I knew we had a question, but because I think the idea here is these are ways that the um, parties try to have some control over who gets their nominations. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. I mean, parties, party for one thing, for parties to exist, it depends on people who are willing to put in the work to actually do the party work. And so those people, I think, justifiably, um, you know, have both more knowledge and uh, and maybe, you know, more judgment and um, should have more influence because they're doing the work of uh actually, you know, party building and, 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 and that kind of thing. And second of all, it's, it's, a, it's bewildering for the voters to have, you know, have a debate with 25 people on stage. I mean, I, I can't even see any value. Like even, even if the idea was, um, you know, some, some voter wants the idea to, uh, wants to get a really unfiltered view of all the candidates, you know, it's too unwieldy. You, you wouldn't get an unfiltered view of all the candidates if you had 25 candidates up there. You'd just hear from each of them for a minute or two. Uh, and and who knows, you know, whether whether that would be, uh, uh, you know, something that would be very substantive or not. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's good for parties. I actually think if the Republicans would have had a, a stronger if they would have had superdelegates and if they would have had this kind of gatekeeping, they never would have got Trump as the nominee. And and I think that's a good thing. I, I, I really don't like the idea of, uh, um, uh, you know, what might be seen as populist insurgency, but also what I would see as um, 
replacing the influence of parties with the influence of big money that's outside the parties. You know, I, I think parties have more legitimacy um, than the the sources of big money, which seems to me that that's what would fill the vacuum if the if the parties got weakened. No, it, what's interesting to me, and I feel like sometimes I'm a bit of a uh, of a voice in the wilderness, or maybe just an Adams on this one. Eat, pick your pick, either one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that a lot of the moves of the progressives in the late 19th century continue in the 1960s to try to get rid of the smoke-filled rooms while they were laudable and intent. They actually led to a lot of the contemporary political. Tumors and problems that we see. I mean, again, go back to the 1968 convention. That's where we're going to get this push towards the idea that we don't want parties. You know, it's kind of the, the 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 capper to not wanting parties to play any kind of gatekeeper function because we want the average person to decide. And my answer is the average person can't decide. It, it doesn't make sense to try to have them decide. As you're saying, out of 27,000 candidates, it's not going to happen. And it's not coincidental, in my opinion, as a a scholar of political communication to say it's the 1968 convention that gives us the beginning of the ideas of talking heads coming out of ABC. It's where we get pundits. It's where we get the the famous left-right debates that, that give us the rise to cable and to the social media soundtrack. And I don't think any of that has done the political process. Um, much good. And, 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 and the problem it was att- attempting to fix was not as bad as the cure. Uh, I mean, again, maybe I'm a little stronger yeah. on this than you are, Ken. I don't know. What do no, you think? I, I, I agree. I mean, we didn't get Abraham Lincoln or, or Franklin Roosevelt through a, a primary process. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know that the, the primary, I don't really know that, that it, it does what it's supposed to do. And I, I think it's good to have them. Um, but I, I think the more mediated versions of the primaries, I mean, you do want to you do want to use primaries to some extent to make sure that you're not um, picking somebody who's unacceptable to voters. Right. So 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 primaries do do some vetting. You know, somebody's got to be able to get votes in a primary or else they're they're probably not going to be able to get votes in a general election. But um, that's different but than think, TV ratings, which is effectively yeah, yeah. What, what, what you're basically saying is, well, who can ever get the most media coverage is the one who ought to win. Yeah. Now, one thing one thing I like about um, the way things have been done historically in both parties is um, I like the idea of starting with New Hampshire and Iowa, because I think um, the the small state starting in small states where the politicians can do um, uh, retail campaigning and don't have to rely on on money as much at first, um, I think levels the playing field at first. Right. So that the the candidates all have the same opportunity to get out there in states like Iowa and New Hampshire and try to persuade voters. And, and so you, you start to um, have a, a, a situation where, um, you know, the, the input that you're getting in those states um, from primary voters is, is very useful. Um, but, but on the other hand, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't like the idea of just, you know, d- dispensing with a, a party infrastructure entirely. And, and I, um, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm fully in support of what the DNC is doing here. No, I, I it, it's just it's interesting to me that this continues to be the big push. But I think we're going to actually have to leave the show here, Ken, because we've already gone long. So I hope, listeners, that you've enjoyed uh, this week's politics, guys. But I want to remind everybody before we head out uh, that uh, Michael Baranowski is going to is actually currently teaching a dystopian politics and film course, and every week he's going to be posting commentary on that week's film for. All that's right, all of our Patreon supporters on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash politics guys. Last week he talked about, and this was actually really interesting, uh, 
Planet of the Apes, and Escape from New York. Uh, this week's upcoming movies are Blade Runner and RoboCop. So if you're interested in the dystopian politics of film and you'd like to get on this, any kind of Patreon supporter that you are will get you to this level. All you have to do is be a supporter of the Politics Guys by heading to politicsguys.com slash support uh, and clicking there for either PayPal or for Patreon. And that will hook you up with uh, this week's Blade Runner and RoboCop. Of course, also last week's uh, things on Planet of the Apes and Escape from New York. Well, with that being said, I want to th- thank you all for joining us in the Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.